Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Asset Allocation Weekly Report dated January 15th, 2021. I'm Phil Adler. I'm speaking with Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady. It's been a while. Today is our first podcast of the new year, and we begin the year with a look at the implications of what Bill is terming a rare policy event, in this case, currency debasement. First, Bill, before we discuss the implications of of the event itself, tell us about the conditions which have emerged, which have resulted in this situation. You know, here at Confluence, we publish frequently, daily and weekly reports most often, and this is done in part to provide our clients with a steady flow of information to help them in their investing process. However, one of the downsides of a heavy publication schedule is that it makes it hard to have time to reflect on what's happening, to be able to put the world and markets into perspective. And so, as you noted, it's been a while, and and during that time off, especially being stuck at home, I had time to take long walks and think, and the accompanying chart book there's really only one chart that I haven't presented lately. So so what this week's report represent isn't a lot of new data, but a new way of looking at it. And simply put, we have a central bank that has been engaged since 2008 in a form of currency debasement. That term in plain English means that the Fed is injecting more money into the economy than it needs for the purchase of goods and services. And this year, the debasement has accelerated. Currency debasement sounds like a much more serious situation and something quite different than than a simple decline in the value of the dollar. I was looking at the dollar index the other day, the, the index that measures the dollar against a basket of foreign currencies, and I noticed that it declined 6.7% last year. Now, what is the relationship between currency debasement and this common measure of the decline in the dollar's value? Well, it's different than depreciation. Depreciation is a change in the relative value of of a currency relative to another one. Currency debasement is something more fundamental. It means that the supply of money is rising faster than what is needed for buying things. Depreciation, a weaker dollar, can occur without currency debasement. But the perception of very accommodative monetary policy is often a factor in currency depreciation. Has currency debasement occurred in other countries? And if so, what has been the impact? Well, historically, the outcome's inflationary. Uh, If allowed to go on long enough, households and firms will convert their savings from cash into stuff. Households buy things, firms expand inventory. Think of it as a reallocation of assets on a balance sheet from cash to things. During the last decade, when velocity fell and QE was implemented, there was a chorus of economists and pundits who warned of runaway inflation. Those worries not only didn't come to pass, inflation was considered to be too low by by policymakers. The key point is, if the central bank is pushing liquidity into the economy, it's important to know who's holding it and what they are likely to do with it, because that liquidity will be held in one form or another. Is currency debasement currently a worldwide phenomenon? Yeah, a case can be made for that. Velocity has been falling in most developed nations recently and and has been low for some time. Bill, it sounds like in this case, the Fed has flooded the market with currency to encourage transactions and keep the economy fluid and functional. It seems to me, and I'm I'm a non-economist, but it seems to me that this would encourage inflation. After all, if there are more dollars, the dollar is less valuable and things should cost more. 
Am I right? Often that is the case, but there are two important factors to consider. The first is, what has been the history of inflation in the economy? Think of the Depression-era generation. They experienced the Great Depression, an Echo Depression in 1936, and the Second World War. After that experience, they tended to save money and avoided debt. Policymakers engaged in stimulative policies during the 50s and 60s without triggering an inflation event, mostly because this generation was always cautious based upon their experience. They saved much of the liquidity or held it in government bonds. Later in the 1960s, when the baby boom generation entered adulthood, their experiences were far different and they were less inclined to save. And then in the 1970s, they were trained to hold assets and stuff because the value of money fell quickly. It took aggressive deregulation, globalization, and the Volcker interest rate shock to reverse inflation expectations. And in my opinion, policy wasn't successful in turning those expectations until the mid-1990s. Second, the other issue is who holds the money? In general, if liquidity is concentrated in lower-income households, there's a greater likelihood the money will be spent on goods and services. If you look at the balance sheets of the bottom 50% of households, the bulk of their assets are in housing and consumer durables, things like cars and furniture. On the other hand, if it's concentrated in the upper-income households, it will tend to be invested. Their balance sheets mostly consist of equities as a form of wealth. In general, the combination of experience of the past 15 years, coupled with the fact that cash is concentrated in upper-income households, means that the risk of inflation is lower than one would expect given the level of liquidity. Then are you saying that inflation going forward will only be prominent in limited areas and for limited products? You could say that. We might see higher prices for goods and services purchased by higher-income households. So just to be clear, do we have a situation where there is excessive money in the hands of certain parties and not enough places for them to spend it? Pretty much. The cash is mostly held by the top 10% of households. And since the excessive money is mostly in the hands of the well-to-do, the demand for investments will push up the value of those investments while, say, the price of other products like cars and single-family homes remains relatively well-contained? Yes. It's not that the affluent won't buy things, but there's only so many cars or homes one can own, and so the excess cash will likely go into investment assets. Now, is there a danger of a collapse in the value of equities at some point as, as prices zoom past what we see as the traditional barometers of earnings and growth? Well, that is a risk. What we look for is what conditions can cause a retreat in equity prices. And the top of mind is, is Fed policy. If the Federal Reserve started raising rates and reducing the balance sheet, that would be a risk. And that is going to be an issue at some point. But the Fed has made it pretty clear that it's not going to be an issue for the next 18 to 24 months. If we're wrong and inflation does rise significantly, that will certainly torpedo the equity market. And then there's an, an outlier risk, and that is that we'll reach a level that simply becomes unsustainable. That's kind of what happened in 2000. We are not at all close to such an outcome due to low interest rates, but it is conceivable we could reach such levels. The hangover would be a long period of market retrenchment. So there is a danger out there, but it's probably not in the short run. Can you put a number on it? At, at what point might you be alarmed by the rise in equity values? Well, one of the ways we tried to address that was by regressing the S&P index against the growth rate of real M2 and velocity. 
it would suggest a fair value of over 7,100 on the S&P. Now, that, that isn't our forecast, and let me reiterate that. We are not calling for that level. We expect velocity will tend to recover as the economy improves, but what this exercise does show is that investors should not underestimate the power that this liquidity has had in supporting equity prices. Bill, to what extent has currency debasement already impacted equities or or impacted what we've seen to be a rapid increase that we've already experienced in in equities? Well, it's, it's helped a lot. It's helped significantly, but it isn't the only thing. The Fed's aggressive backstop of the financial markets last March improved investor sentiment and led to a rapid reversal to risk. Bill, the 10-year Treasury note broke above 1% last week for the first time since the pandemic began. Is part of the reason demand by investors for a place to park revenue? We think that's something of a different issue. Our our yield model for the 10-year T-note is projecting a fair value of 1.4%. So the rise in yield, in my opinion, reflects a, a normalization of expectations. We do anticipate the political transfer of power looks like it's going to occur, although it was clearly rocky, and the economy should continue to recover in 2021. Uncertainty over long-term interest rates is how tolerant the Fed will be with rising. So we assume that somewhere between here and and 1.25%, the Fed will begin to express its displeasure with rising long-term interest rates. Bitcoin is up, what, 380%? something like that in the past 12 months. What role does currency debasement play in the rise of the value of Bitcoin? Uh, A lot. Gold and Bitcoin are kind of classic debasement assets. When President Roosevelt devalued gold in 1933, he also made it illegal for private citizens to hold it. If policymakers want to debase, they sometimes make it difficult to acquire such assets. Now, Bitcoin has some advantages over gold. There's no purity assay required. It isn't heavy and can be transferred easily, but it's also hackable where gold is not. Bill, a final question about currency debasement. Now, if I held all my investments in dollars, when would I suffer a serious loss in value at the rate at which currency debasement is presently occurring? Well, potentially, if currency debasement leads to higher price levels, then yes, you you would incur some loss. It's important, however, not to confuse debasement with currency depreciation. In depreciation, you don't necessarily lose any spending power when, when the dollar weakens relative to other currencies, except that import prices may rise. But in debasement, Purchasing power declines in the asset that inflates, and if it's goods and services, it means that you are suffering in your ability to buy things. Thank you, Bill. This is a fascinating subject. I'm sure we'll return to it uh, in future discussions. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll.